Welcome to the Granite State Gardening Podcast, a production of the University of New Hampshire Cooperative Extension. Today's show will focus on the kinds of tough spots and situations we all face, bridging the gap between the theoretical and the reality of gardening and landscaping. We'll touch on dry spots, wet spots, slopes, shade, compaction, foundations, driveways, and even contaminated soils. This show is for all the homeowners, gardeners, and landscapers out there determined to bring out the full potential of whatever conditions and space you have to work with. Let's get into it. Greetings, Granite State Gardeners. My name's Nate Burnett, Public Engagement Manager for UNH Extension, joined as always by Emma Erler, Horticulturist and UNH Extension Field Specialist. Howdy, everyone. So, Emma, today we're talking about gardening and landscaping in tough spots and tough situations. And we can go a million places with this. We can talk about gardening situations whether it's the vegetable garden or flower gardens, but we can also talk about a variety of landscaping situations that property owners are going to deal with and even landscapers are going to deal with. I think we should start by talking about some really classic tough spots. Uh, let's start with wet locations. So when I say wet, I mean areas where water pools it doesn't seem to drain very well. And so you're really needing to select plants that can tolerate having wet feet. Um, unless you have tips as well on kind of how to fundamentally change a wet location so that it drains better. Yeah, great place to start because those wet locations on a property are often a big challenge because, you know, it's hard to find things that necessarily want to grow there. Uh, maybe Take, cutting down on the amount of uh, space you have to, to have a garden or recreation areas. And then, of course, some people are concerned about mosquitoes in those spots, too. So there's, there's a lot going on. Uh, my focus, typically, when you have a spot like that on your property that's low-lying, that tends to collect a lot of water, is to try to grow plants that appreciate those conditions. There are definitely shrubs, native wetland shrubs that do really well in that scenario. Uh, There's also lots of perennials that can grow in a wetter soil. I think that's your easiest approach to just plant based on the conditions. What you can also think about doing too, you know, provided this area isn't actually a designated wetland, you know, if this is just a low area in your lawn or something like that, is that you could possibly do some site work, uh, have a contractor come in and be regrading the area to change the slope. Uh, That's going to be expensive, though, uh, and may or may not entirely solve your issue. A lot of times when you have a wet area, you have a fundamentally different type of soil in that spot, too. So I think that just planting things that are adapted to grow in more of a a wetland or swampy scenario is really going to be your best bet. Can you give some examples of perennials, trees, shrubs, uh, maybe natives in particular that thrive in that kind of location? And are these, maybe maybe you can differentiate too by shade tolerant versus, well, I don't know, are we going to have a lot of really wet locations that are also in full sun? I suppose. I think 
often that's the case. Uh, A lot of times, well, let me put it this way. A lot of the trees and shrubs and perennials that do really well in wet locations are adapted to full sun spots, which kind of makes sense when you consider that ponds, edges of ponds or lakes or or wetlands are typically going to have a lot of sun exposure. For some people, though, they may have, let's say, a wet area that's kind of in the woods or underneath some trees, uh, and that's going to be a little bit more challenging to plant, but not impossible. Some of my favorites for wet areas would definitely be some of the willows. might be kind of hard to find some of the native willows in cultivation, uh, but any willow is going to do well in a wetter spot. Dogwoods definitely like wetter soils. Now, you wouldn't plant a dogwood in standing water, but you could plant it at the edge of that area. Another good one is elderberry which good for a number of reasons, right? Really excellent for wildlife. If you're planting black elderberry, you could also be harvesting the fruits and making your own jams or jellies or juices, whatever you like. And of course, winterberry holly is really a landscaping favorite. And this is a plant that tolerates a lot of different growing conditions. And if you're not familiar with with what I'm talking about, if you have driven any road in New Hampshire that goes by a wet, swampy area in the fall and have seen a plant that's covered in red berries. That's winterberry. So it's a species of holly that's deciduous, which means it loses its leaves in the fall over the winter, uh, but it has those really beautiful fruits. That's a plant that likes a wetter soil as well. For trees, you have options on this front too. There are a number of species that definitely grow in, in swampier or wetter areas. Red maple, is a favorite that does really well in that sort of scenario. Again, not planted directly in the water, but at the edge of the water. And another plant that I don't think gets used enough that's called black tupelo, uh, Nissa sylvatica, has an incredibly beautiful red glossy foliage in the fall, and it produces fruit, too, that birds will eat. So another really nice native And I'll just say a a few perennials that I think really need to be planted in wetter areas. One is blue flag iris. This is a native iris with blue flowers that you would find at the edges of of ponds, typically earlier in spring. We've kind of gone by now. Cardinal flower is another one that I absolutely love. It's a full sun plant, too. All of these, all of everything I've listed so far is going to prefer full sun. Um, The cardinal flower has really pretty red blooms that... Bees, butterflies, hummingbirds can't get enough of. And one more is turtle head, which is kind of a neat perennial. And then it has these flowers that don't fully open up. They, they honestly look a little bit like a turtle head, which is how it gets its name. Uh, but that's a really late bloomer towards the end of summer. So for these areas that tend to stay wet, especially I'm thinking spring and fall, um, we've been going through some drought recently, and some of these wet areas may not be so wet over the summer when we have extended periods of drought. Are you needing to actually think about providing supplemental irrigation in these areas, or are they really kind of plant and let be even during dry periods? My take is that once these plants are established, it's just plant and let them be. When you first put these in the ground, if you have really dry weather, they are going to need water. But once they're established, they're pretty well adapted to changing levels of of moisture. 
So let's say a, a red maple, for example, can do pretty well if it's inundated for a short amount of time. So let's even say a couple of months, there's a lot of water around its root system. But that same plant is going to be absolutely fine when that area dries out entirely. In fact, it's going to be happier if that area isn't entirely flooded at all times. Okay. And then how about for wet spots that aren't full sun? Sounds like it's a bit more challenging, maybe less plants to choose from, but any come to mind? Well, you're not going to be seeing quite as many flowers or fruits if you're going to plant in a shady location. But the uh, dogwoods that I mentioned before will definitely take some shade. And a number of the viburnums will as well, native viburnums. So I'd probably be planting something like arrowwood that definitely likes a, a wetter soil. And the winterberry could handle some shade too. You just won't get quite as many of those fruits that are so attractive in late summer and fall. The native viburnums have gone a little bit out of style. As far as I can tell, can you talk a little bit about the challenges that growers are having with native viburnums and what you may be able to do to make them work? I think probably the biggest issue with the viburnums is uh, an invasive pest called the viburnum leaf beetle that was introduced from Europe. It can really decimate some of the native viburnums, particularly arrowwood viburnum and cranberry bush viburnum. This insect will skeletonize the leaves, essentially eating all of the green leaf tissue on the plant's leaf and leaving it bare, which is, you know, not attractive to begin with. And it's also not good for the plant if this happens year after year after year. Uh, feeding can be intense enough that if a plant is defoliated every single year, it's going to decline and maybe eventually die. So for a lot of guard, a lot of gardeners have just stopped planting these because they don't want to have to deal with this pest issue. If you are still really determined to grow viburnum, um, and you can totally get away with it, because in some spots where there isn't high viburnum leaf beetle pressure, uh, you're going to be looking at possibly treating those shrubs with an insecticide, um, which is not going to be uh, <laughs> ideal for a lot of people. If you're totally against using chemicals and you have this pest, removing the eggs is actually going to be the best thing you can do. Uh, so what you'll be going out and looking for is twigs that have kind of a, a swollen area on them. Uh, and this is going to actually be where the viburnum leaf beetle adult laid its eggs and then covered them over with bits of bark and excrement. So be scouting for those. Uh, you can definitely still grow viburnums. Uh, just know that, unfortunately, there's an introduced pest that you have to deal with. I think it's particularly challenging to try and use an insecticide in a consistently wet area, right? Because we're, we're often concerned about impacts to aquatic organisms. And many of those products have, have quite a bit of toxicity in those environments. So, yeah, really, really challenging. And again, there's, you know, it's a good reason why a lot of people have strayed away from some of the native viburnums, despite how much value they provide to wildlife and the landscape. Absolutely. Yeah, that's such a good point, Nate. So we've talked about wet areas. Let's go to the complete opposite side of the spectrum to really dry areas. So in New Hampshire, we have a lot of dry spots because of how sandy the soil tends to be. It's not always sandy, but a lot of New Hampshire has really sandy and, of course, rocky soil. Uh, so 
not as difficult, right, to to landscape in really sunny dry spots. Again, just like in the the wet areas, there are a lot of plants that tolerate that. Um, but what about some of our dry and shady locations? I think that's probably one of the hardest places to plant in the landscape, uh, from my experience anyways, as a, as a gardener. There's definitely a limited plant palette, if you will, of plants that will tolerate dry shade. It's just a, a, a tough way to live. A lot of the, the most popular woodlanders, so a lot of the, the native plants or native wildflowers that people enjoy putting into more of a, a shady garden, are going to want a really nice, rich soil that's high in organic matter, that has consistent moisture. And in most spots in New Hampshire, because you don't see super lush undergrowth in most of the forests in New Hampshire, you're going to be either having to amend that soil, so bringing in a bunch of organic matter, uh, or you're going to have a more limited plant palette. So less choices of things that you can plant that are actually going to do well in that dry shade. One of my favorites, which I think is starting to get used more in landscaping, uh, is called Pennsylvania sedge. So a a sedge is similar to a grass. It's an entirely different group, uh, but has that, that grassy look. And this is a species that stays pretty small and short, typically doesn't grow more than a foot tall, kind of a a nice um, yellow green color. And you find this growing in dry slopes, typically, or or dry areas in the woods in New Hampshire, um, often underneath deciduous trees. So I think that that's definitely worth consideration. There are, um, you know, definitely some others that do well, too. Uh, Partridge berry is a nice one. And it's a plant, if you are a hiker or spend your time in the woods, you've probably seen this around. Uh, it's It's a creeping ground cover, you know, vining kind of plant that's really nice. And then if you aren't, you know, looking to stay entirely native, you know, there's some other plants that do pretty well in dry areas as well. One of my faves is European wild ginger, which has kind of this kidney-shaped leaf that's really dark, glossy green. Uh, and that, So that's a plant that would absolutely thrive if you put it in a sunny location or a sunnier part shade location, but it will do okay even in that that dry um, soil. So I guess with anything you plant in a, a dry shady spot, you can expect growth to just be much slower and less robust than if you were to grow in a you know the perfect rich loamy soil in in a sunnier spot. Right, and I know that there are more plants, particularly a lot of our natives, given that we have that naturally sandy, rocky soil that do pretty well in sunny, dry spots. But you want to give a few of your favorites? Oh, totally. Yeah. So those those sunny, dry spots, easier to deal with, certainly. You may not be able to grow everything that you, you like, but there are a lot of plants adapted to that. For those that are interested in in monarch butterflies, I think butterfly weed is a must, Um, Asclepius tuberosa. This is a a milkweed that has really lovely orange flowers, though there are also some varieties that have um, yellow flowers, which are also attractive. Not only is this plant going to feed monarch butterflies, uh, it's going to feed a whole bunch of other um, pollinators as well. So 
That's a must. Loves that plant. Loves the crappiest, sandiest, um, hot, dry site possible. So it's it's hard to mess up with that. Another plant that I really really like uh, for for hot and sunny dry spots is uh, Coreopsis, which is uh, more of a plain species, not something you're going to find growing in the wild in New Hampshire, at least not the species we grow in gardens. But you have these really nice sunny yellow flowers typically, um, and a plant that likes dry. And I always think that some of the native grasses are worthy of consideration as well, some of these warm season bunch grasses for dry sites, and you'll you'll find this species on the side of the road where it's pretty much just sand and gravel, uh, is little blue stem. Really attractive grass, used widely in ornamental horticulture, and worthy of a spot, I think, in most landscapes. I, I do think that grasses are often underused in the home landscape. And let's add an additional variable to the equation. Let's throw some slope in there. So now we're thinking dry rocky, poor soil, well, let's still roll with full sun or mostly full sun, um, but add in a slope or even a severe slope. So now we're getting into not only do we need plants that tolerate um, those types of conditions, but also from a practical landscaping perspective, how do we plant and establish those um, while managing erosion and uh, managing the fact that it's really difficult to water those in because uh, we're we're getting water just flowing down the hill and you know it's just there's so many challenges with landscaping on those slopes. So how do you approach projects like that? You just hit on so many important points, Nate, of why planting on a slope can be a challenge. Worthwhile, though, in that having some plant material there is going to actually do the best possible job of holding that soil in place. Uh, it's just a matter of getting things established. That's, that's really the challenge here. If you're dealing with an incredibly steep slope, well, I don't even know what we're talking about grade here, but if you just think of a, a really steep area, I think what can sometimes be helpful is to use some of these, um, you know, geotextiles. So actually a, some sort of um, woven material to help keep soil in place while plants are becoming established. My preference, and a lot of you have probably seen this on the side of the road with maybe some highway construction projects or similar, is to use like a, a jute mat or if you will, or more like a jute net. So it's this natural material that you can stake down on a slope that's going to help keep the soil in place while plants are becoming established. I I think this is really critical, especially if you're trying to plant grass or wildflowers on a steep site. So you're waiting for seed to germinate. You need something that's going to slow water down so seeds aren't all going to get washed away and the soil is not going to get washed away. Uh, and that's that's something you can order from garden supply catalogs or maybe even pick up at, at some garden centers. So that's one thought. If you are planting something larger, say you're gonna you're gonna put in some shrubs to hold the soil in place, then you may not have to take that step because you're putting a plant in instead of waiting trying to keep seeds in place. One of my favorite favorite shrubs for these sunny dry slopes is tough location is fragrant sumac, Rue aromatica. This is 
not native to New Hampshire, but it's native to Eastern North America. Really, really attractive shrub that prefers actually these these thin soils on on slopes uh, or just thin rocky soils in general. And it will also spread to form a nice ground cover. Um, So if I was planting that shrub, what I would be doing is spacing them as closely as I could, you know, based on my budget. So getting as many plants as possible. And when I would be putting them in the ground, often what I would try to do is form some sort of well with a soil. So making more of a a trough or something, if you will, that's going to help retain some moisture when I go to water that plant. Um, If I plant it just level with the slope, it's going to be really hard to collect enough water when I water to really um, drench that, that plant's root system. So that's definitely my approach there. If for whatever reason you were planting a tree on a slope, you would kind of be doing the same thing. Uh, where you're going to have to build up the soil on, on the downward side of that tree a little bit so that you can have it sitting perfectly upright um, and having enough soil on the downward slope for the, that root system. Um, don't know if you can picture that or not, um, but that's that's critical. And with the watering, uh, having you know more of a that that well around the plant can be helpful. Uh, It's still going to be tough if you're running a sprinkler to keep some of that soil from washing. So putting down a heavier mulch, I think, is also helpful, something that's not going to wash away. So that that might be, you know, a a colored bark or wood mulch. uh, Or probably my preference would actually be arborist wood chips because these are heavy. The only way they're going to wash away is if you get a torrential downpour. I was speaking with one gardener the other day who was struggling to actually even get wood chips to stay on a slope, right? She she doesn't really want to traverse the slope because it's so steep and, again, erosion issues. And she's trying to figure out how do I even get wood chips or mulch or, you know, whatever she's using around these plants in the right way. Because as you know and talk about often, mulching technique really matters. You don't just want to throw mulch down and um, you want to make sure that it's not pushed up against the trunk and that you that you are getting that right thickness and all of that. So any tips for dealing with situations where you really don't even have access to getting onto that slope? I think if we're dealing with a slope that's that severe, Using an organic mulch might not be possible or it might not be practical because it's you're just not going to be able to get that material to stay in place. So in those sorts of situations, when we're talking about an extreme slope, I'm often thinking about actually using stone um, and larger stone. So like riprap. And you'll you'll see this in housing developments and along the edges of roadways where there's just larger sized stones that are put down to help uh, keep the soil in place, and they're not going to move around. Uh, you can absolutely plant with this still. So you just have little pockets that you're planting your shrubs in. You're not going to get quite the same creeping effect of the uh, uniform ground cover because there's you know not as much bare soil. But it can it can still be attractive, again, depending on how densely you plant to begin with. So that would probably be my approach. You know, if, if a heavy arborist wood chip isn't staying in place on a slope, I, I think you might be looking at, at doing some larger stones instead. And then there's the site prep issue. So as you know, I'm 
working on establishing a wildflower meadow on a slope and I'm using tarps to try and kill the existing vegetation, sort of uh, sparse grass, really. Um, and it's a challenge keeping that material in place. So I'll just say what I'm doing is a combination of landscape staples and really heavy materials that can weigh uh, weigh the tarp down. So bags of sand, uh, flat pieces of heavy concrete, uh, things like that. Um, but I have to go out and maintain that and make sure those staples aren't coming out. Um, it's, it's really every aspect from site prep to planting to maintenance is a challenge on slopes. Definitely. Totally. And I think that's sometimes why people end up doing terracing on steep slopes too, because it's just a a little bit easier when you have more or less steps built into the hillside to maintain uh, vegetation that you're growing at, you know, more of a, a level position. Of course, that's a lot of work to begin with. That's it's going to require a lot of site work to do that. Um, so I think most people are only going to do that on a small scale. Let's say you have a, a really steep slope right by the front door of a house. You might do some terracing. Maybe if you were desperate to grow a vegetable garden, and you only had sloped land, you might you might work on building some terraces. But otherwise, yeah, I, I think it's just going to take a little bit more labor to get things established on that slope. And I, I think one of the things you kind of have to accept, too, is that it's going to take a while for it to look good because that growing environment often tends to be subprime where it is incredibly well-drained. So not as much moisture there for, for the plants, often a thinner, thinner, rockier soil. Things are going to grow more slowly. Mm-hmm. And from a landscaping perspective, you don't want to plant something that needs to be mowed if the slope is so severe that you just realistically can't maneuver a mower on it. But for slopes that aren't so severe and maybe a larger area where it's just going to be impractical uh, to do individual plantings, you might be looking at mowing. I think a lot of landscapers might look at hydro seeding as an establishment technique uh, for those spots, whether it's just a grass or potentially some sort of erosion-specific mix. you talk a little bit about how you might approach that? Yeah, so hydro seeding is definitely an option. Uh, if you're not familiar with that, it, with what that is, basically you're putting down grass seed or whatever's in the mix with some sort of carrier. Oftentimes it's paper and water. So this is actually all getting sprayed out. So essentially you've got your seed and you've got your mulch that's all been put down together um, on that slope. So that can definitely be helpful. Uh, It can still wash out if you have a, a torrential rain like we've been having recently with a lot of thunderstorms. So that that's a that's still a concern and is always a concern if you're planting on a slope. Um, and I think that's sometimes where that uh, that those that jute mesh that I was mentioning before that's sometimes where that comes in handy, so that you are hopefully keeping things from washing a bit more. It is definitely a challenge to try to have a lawn on a really steep area, like you noted, Nate. Probably not going to be able to mow that spot. You might be able to go after it with a with a weed whacker, string trimmer, whatever you want to call it. But that's obviously very labor intensive too. I I think that the uh, wildflower meadow is an awesome idea. 
you know, as long as you can get in there regularly to cut down anything woody that's trying to grow in that spot. And then, like I mentioned before, some of the shrubs that do well in those sites, I, I think, are good choices. Um, you know, that, that does require planting a, a fair amount. But, you know, long term, there's not going to be very much maintenance. Let's talk about another challenging spot, which is right along the house. So there are kind of there are different ways you can set up a gutter system uh, or maybe you don't have a gutter system. So uh, we we particularly hear from people uh, dealing with challenges who don't have that gutter system where water is just flowing off the house directly onto the plants they have next to the house. So the plants are dealing with bizarre, unnatural sun exposure, uh, probably poor soil right along the house, and uh, constantly water coming from overhead and maybe staying on those leaves causing disease issues potentially, uh, and we definitely see that. Um, from a landscaping perspective, how do you approach that, and does your approach depend on what side of the house it is? I think oftentimes people will plant things directly up to the foundation, and that's absolutely where you run into that issue with water pouring straight off the roof for gutters. Preferable in this situation is to have some sort of a buffer area between the house and where your, your garden beds start. And what that typically looks like is, is gravel, pea stone, maybe some larger river stone underneath so that where the water is pouring off the house, it's not pouring directly onto a plant. No, because it, especially in a, a heavy rain, it could be high velocity. So you want that water dropping onto the stone below and then your plants directly beyond that. Where... Um, you know, there can often be an issue is when we have these really heavy storm events and water is just pounding down on, on perennials in particular. One thought is that you're going to not put things with super delicate foliage and stems right next to the roof line, uh, things that are a, a bit tougher, perhaps some of the, the ground covers that, that hold up, you know, pretty well to, to foot traffic, um, would be able to handle some some water coming down. You also wouldn't want to plant anything either, you know, close to the house that has real susceptibility to fungal disease issues. And one thing I see all the time is powdery mildew on flocks or on bee balm that's planted close to the house where there's not a lot of airflow. So that's those are plants that I would only put out and away from the home where there's going to be, you know, great air movement, plenty of sun. One other thing that's kind of unique about planting right next to the house is that there can be kind of a microclimate near the home where it's actually warmer up against the house than it is out further in your surrounding lawn. So if you've ever planted bulbs outside your home, you've probably noticed that the daffodils, let's say, bloom earliest that are up against your foundation as opposed to the ones that are you know a couple hundred yards away. What that means is that sometimes you can get away, actually, with planting things that aren't quite as cold-hardy in your garden, particularly on the, let's say, the southern or the southern or eastern exposure of your house. So if you've been dying to try, let's say, a big-leaf hydrangea, that might be a good spot to try it. 
Um, on the north side of the house, typically you just want to go with things that are really shade tolerant. That's where something like that, that European ginger might be nice. Um, hostas, which are always popular, could certainly work. And a whole suite of, of other shade-loving perennials. Well, a lot of times right next to the house, especially if you're trying to hide what's what's next to it, people want a landscape with evergreens. Uh, and so that could be uh, like a boxwood or an inkberry. Uh, there, there are all kinds of evergreens, but um, evergreens also aren't necessarily going to tolerate those conditions really well, especially if you do what so many people seem to do, which is planting too close to the house, not anticipating the full mature size of those plants and then needing to prune them off the house, maybe not following uh, best practices uh, for pruning for the health of the plants. Uh, what do you advise for people that do want to try planting evergreens that can prov- that can provide, whether it's privacy or, or just a, a visual screen uh, to, to hide uh, unsightly aspects of, of the lower part of the house. Totally. Well, you hit the nail on the head earlier there, Nate, by saying choosing plants that are, are going to be the appropriate size at maturity. So what's absolutely critical in my mind is doing a little bit of homework on plant varieties that are going to, at their maturity, so let's say 10, 15 years down the line, are still going to fit this spot. So figure out, you know, figure out the height of your windows. That's probably key because you want to have a maximum height figured out for that plant. And now granted, I'm saying this, plants don't always follow these rules. You know, it depends on growing conditions, you know, how big they're going to get. A lot of very old, old dwarf cultivars will get far larger uh, than what they were you know, marketed as when they were planted, but you probably have to wait 100 years for that to happen. So I'm usually thinking more about 15, 20 years down the line. With the majority of evergreens, there are tons and tons of different cultivated varieties or cultivars for each species. And size varies dramatically between them as well as growth habit. So some might grow in a, a columnar habit, meaning they're they're gonna grow, they're gonna be pretty narrow and just grow straight upwards. Others are gonna have more of a spreading habit, so be pretty short uh, and spread outwards. So I would recommend um, you know, going by some local garden centers looking to see what they have, uh, maybe taking note of what the varieties are and you know, if you have good service on your phone, you might be able to do some research right then and there to look up a little bit more on that plant and its mature size. Or, you know, jot some notes down, go home, do a little bit of research so that you're choosing something that you're not going to be constantly battling over the course of that plant's life. So two questions there and probably uh, questions that are coming up for people as they're listening, I hope. So one would be, yeah, just the fact that you go shopping and you have your list of all of these specialty cultivars that are going to be the perfect fit for your situation, but you just can't find them. I mean, heck, you might go to a garden center where they have one choice for a particular plant. There's not a variety of cultivars. There's just one. Uh, maybe you go to better stocked garden centers and nurseries and they have a few 
but compare that to all the cultivars that allegedly exist when you're doing your online research and it's kind of confounding. So how do you approach that if you do have a particular uh, cultivar in mind, how you might go about sourcing that? Uh, And the second thing is you're talking about doing research, whether you're at the garden center or at home. Uh, what tips or maybe resources would you suggest as as places to actually do that research? Yeah. So go, before you go shopping, I do think it's helpful to potentially do some research. But as you mentioned, it could be hard to actually find that particular variety. A lot of times when I have have done this sort of research and come up with, let's say, a list of of disease resistant crab apples and think like this one's going to be great. This is going to be perfect. But that plant may have fallen out of popularity a decade ago. So nobody's really growing it anymore. And you, frankly, might not be able to find it anywhere, certainly local. If you are dead set on a specific cultivar, ordering it might be one possibility. Another option, too, is just to talk to the staff at your local garden center um, and, you know, see if there's a possibility of them ordering that plant, you know, either either this season or the following season. A lot of um, nurseries or, or sorry, a lot of garden centers are getting plant shipments throughout the season. Um, and, you know, depending on what the supply chain looks like, they, they might be able to get specifically what you're looking for. That's a great approach, especially if you're not in a rush. Right. If you want to go to the garden center and buy something that day. You're going to have less options, but if you're willing to play the long game and plan for later in the season or even the next year, which makes a lot of sense. Right now we're recording in early July and gosh, there's not a whole lot that you really even want to be planting right now. So looking forward to the fall or more realistically, probably early spring of the next year is going to give you uh, that opportunity to work with garden center staff to try and get what you're looking for. And if you are in a bind, you know, if you have to plant something right now, recognizing that this is not the ideal time, be a little bit flexible. You may not be able to find that specific variety that you research, but there's probably still going to be something quite similar out there. Uh, there. There usually is. There's, there's, I think unless you are an absolute expert, I think a lot of people are going to have a hard time telling one dwarf cultivar from the next. One other thought I have is that landscapers may be able to source more options than you might be able to because they're able to potentially shop at wholesale nurseries. Is that your experience? Yeah. So if you if you work with a landscaper or if you're willing to, they, they probably are going to be able to get their hands on a, a greater diversity of, of plant material. Yeah. So if you're really insistent on that, you could potentially order something very young online from a specialty nursery or work with your landscaper to, to get something more local, but from a place that doesn't necessarily sell retail Sales, plant sales have been nuts mm. uh, the last two years. Uh, but, but I think a lot, most years you have some time to go and shop around a little bit, see what's there, do your research, go back and buy it. And maybe not, maybe not this year because people are, are shopping or buying so many plants, but that's typically a possibility. And in terms of, you know, resources to, to look up information on these plants, uh, there are some, some great reference books uh, I use the the manual of of um, woody landscape plants. I, I don't think that's the exact title, um, but by Michael Durr. Uh, and I also 
refer to some online sources as well. So the Missouri Botanical Garden has some really awesome resources. The majority of landscape plants are on their website, and you can look at the size, uh, what they require for um, growing requirements, uh, just a whole suite of information. Um, and some of the some of the land grant universities have some great landscaping resources too. So UConn does, um, for example, have profiles of all sorts of different plants. So doing a, a .edu search on Google um, for landscape plants can be helpful too. And I would just put in a plug for UNH Extension's website where we don't necessarily have that built out uh, database of plant profiles, but you've done a fantastic job and continue to do a great job of putting together nice plant lists for specific situations in uh, forms of articles, whether it's your fact sheet on ground covers or some of your articles on more specific situations. So it would point people in that direction as well. Uh, a topic we haven't talked about yet is dealing with compaction. Uh, and there's a few different situations there. So one would be if you're if you happen to have uh, heavily clay based soil, that's not as common in New Hampshire as the really sandy soil. But I think parts of the state do have a lot of clay soil. And a situation that comes up for me in compaction is going to be uh, next to driveways uh, or in sort of street plantings, things like that, where pavement asphalt is contributing to that compaction. And of course, just areas that get a lot of foot traffic or vehicle traffic too, they're, they're, they're going to be compact as well. Uh, so let's start with the clay issue. Um, what's the solution there? Are there plants that tolerate that? And are there techniques that can alleviate that? One uh, technique we often hear about is adding sand to clay soil, which makes sense in in your head, right? There's clay soil and there's sandy soil. And if you want your clay soil to be less clay-based, can you just add sand? That is a good question, Nate. So it's helpful to think about soil, too, and the different size particles. The reason that, that clay we always call so heavy is because clay particles are very, very, very small versus sand, which is quite coarse. So there's there's not as much airspace in clay, clay soil, um, and the water does not tend to drain as freely. So that can cause some issues for a lot of plants. Fortunately, there are plants that are adapted to more of a, a clay soil, uh, which you can totally go that route. Uh, or if you're really trying to grow a nice diversity of plants, one of the best things you can do actually is to add organic matter to that soil. Adding the sand, uh, though it does seem like it would make sense if you're trying to get that ratio perfect in your in your garden by mixing plant, clay and sand, it's really, really difficult to do, uh, and I don't know of anyone who's had success doing that. You would have to probably bring in a vast amount of sand, uh, and it would be hard to get those mixed up perfectly to have better drainage. Um, so on a site, just adding sand to the soil, I, I don't think that you're going to end up with great results. The approach that I would push for is mixing in a whole bunch of good quality compost into that clay soil because uh, that compost is going to create larger pore spaces in that clay for 
air and, and water, um, air being really critical especially. So it's going to improve drainage of that clay uh, so that plants can be a little bit healthier. Now, whenever we're amending soil with organic matter, though, you have to remember that the organic matter is going to break down. So if you have a clay-based soil or even if you have a sandy soil and you're adding organic matter to it, you are going to have to continually do that because um, gradually over time that organic matter will break down and you've, you've lost the benefits of it in that soil. Well, let's go back to the clay soil that maybe it's just not going to be practical for you to add enough organic matter year after year to, to really change it fundamentally. Uh, so how do you approach that? What plants are you going to look at that are going to thrive in heavy, compact clay soil? Great question. Yeah, it's so it, with clay, you can you can grow a, a good variety of things still. I often gravitate towards some of the really tough perennials that, that seem to do well no matter what. So I've had great luck with irises in clay. Uh, certainly with daylilies and, uh, you know, hostas will pretty much take anything too and often seem to do a little bit better in that heavier clay that holds on to a bit more water than uh, the sandy soils that are that are so common in New Hampshire. Is it hard to find native plants that do really well in clay just because clay isn't as significant a part of this region's soil profile? Yeah, so if you're trying to grow only New Hampshire native plants, it, it could be a little bit more challenging just because there there aren't a whole lot of real clayy soils in New Hampshire. You certainly can still find things that that do well though in that sort of soil. You're just you tend to be looking at things that grow a bit further west. One of my favorites that I haven't mentioned yet. So I mentioned the European wild ginger. Uh, but there is actually a, a North American native ginger, uh, Canada ginger, which likes, you know, a heavier clay soil, um, does quite well in that sort of soil. Uh, and that's a, a really lovely ground cover that I, I think has a place in most shady gardens. Maybe taking a couple steps back, when you're taking a look at soil, I know that you can actually get your soil professionally analyzed. but how do you figure out whether soil is heavily clay or sandy or I guess what we would call loamy somewhere in the middle? Yeah. So what you can do there uh, is to actually test doing of a, a, there are a few different ways you can do a texture analysis basically of your soil. Um, one way is to take a, a soil sample and mix it in a, a jar or a glass with water. And, you know, shake it up and then let it settle out. And basically the, the different soil particles are going to settle out in different, at different levels. So you'll have the sand particles, the, the really coarse stuff that settles out first. It's the heaviest. Then you're going to have um, silt and clay. Uh, so you can, you can kind of look at it that way and see what the uh, relative percentages are. You know, this is, this is estimation, of course. You could also be doing um, a texture analysis just by wetting a small amount of soil in your palm and trying to roll that soil into a ball. If you're able to form it into a ball that 
you know, is pretty stable. You can even put a little bit of pressure on it with your finger and it doesn't fall apart. It probably means you have a high percentage of clay in your soil. If you're trying to do this with a sandy soil, you might not even be able to form it into a ball to begin with. And if you have a, a nice loamy soil that has a, you know, relatively equal amounts of sand, silt, and clay, then that that ball that you form is going to crack apart if you try to put a lot of pressure on it. My experience when buying soil is that soil labeled as topsoil often is heavily clay-based, which is interesting in this region where so much of our natural soil is sandy. You know, actually taking some of that really cheap topsoil and mixing it in as kind of an amendment in addition when you're planting not necessarily vegetables or, or plants that need a lot of organic matter, but just plants that would probably appreciate a little bit more water retention. Does that make sense to you? Uh, it can, potentially. You know, in some sites, the only reason a person has a lawn, let's say, is because they brought in a whole bunch of topsoil. Uh, really, any new development probably has had a whole bunch of topsoil brought in. So when the site work happens with a lot of construction projects, all of the topsoil that was there, that native soil gets scraped off in order to dig the foundation, do any earthworks that need to be done around the property. So that gets hauled away in a dump truck. And then typically some some uh, topsoil is brought back in for the actual planting. So in most cases, you know, and depending on what the site is like where your home is built, you probably aren't dealing with the, the native soil that was there anyways, you know really depends. With bringing in topsoil, it varies a lot. And you're not going to know exactly where it came from because it's exactly what it is. Typically, it's that that top layer of soil that was scraped off of a site by a piece of equipment. You're purchasing and putting it back down um, on your landscape. So if you don't really have much in the way of soil at all, say this is just, you know, pure sand, like we're dealing with coarse beach sand or something on a property, and there's there's really no um, more of a, a sand silt or a clay silt component to it, organic matter, bringing in topsoil I think is appropriate. If you have, let's say, just like a, a sandy soil or clay soil that's difficult to deal with, you're better off bringing in a bunch of organic matter to amend that soil than to bring in, you know, a big truckload of topsoil. And let's revisit that driveway scenario. You know, for me, that brings up a couple challenges. One, of course, being the compaction, but also the fact that, especially if you're planting trees, shrubs that have more complex root systems that go farther out, those roots are going to be in really different situations under the driveway versus going the other direction. And then a driveway scenario, you're dealing with potentially getting pummeled by a plow and by snow uh, over the winter. And if this is along a street and in a more urban environment, salt too. How do you go about choosing plants that are going to be able to tolerate these really extreme and unnatural conditions? I would absolutely be, first off, looking at plant lists of, of perennials, trees, and shrubs that tolerate salt. And there's a, there's a decent list of, of plants that do just fine in that sort of scenario. 
you're also going to have to probably be thinking about heat and drought as well. Typically right next to that roadway or right next to the driveway, you're going to be getting, especially if it's paved, a lot of radiant heat off of that asphalt, which some plants are not going to appreciate. Often evergreens do not appreciate this. Um, and those spots, like I said, they, they can tend to be kind of compacted too and or just really, uh, really uh, um, coarsely drained. So very, very sandy, let's say, on the side of the road. And some of that's going to be increased over time, too, if you live along a roadway where sand is used in the wintertime in addition to salt. So that's something to think about. So I'm, I'm thinking about plants that will tolerate compaction, that will tolerate drought, and ideally are going to be able to tolerate some salt as well. That might sound like, well, what? likes that. Well, there actually is a, a remarkable number of, of plants that are okay in that scenario, and it tends to be some of these these really rugged things. Uh, for example, so if you're looking to plant trees, one of my favorites is the thornless honey locust. This is a plant that's native to North America. Super, super tough. It's in the pea family, um, and I believe it actually fixes some of its own nitrogen, so it makes its own fertilizer. And uh, it does well in these these tough growing conditions near near driveways or in little pocket planters along a sidewalk or something similar. For perennials, uh, again, I'm I'm thinking some of these really tough things. The daylily never fails in that tough spot. Siberian iris again doesn't does pretty well. And I'll, I'll bring up the ornamental grasses again because I think they could stand to be used more. Most of these are, are really tough, and they're fine with uh, any of that, that salt or uh, getting accidentally backed over by a car or any of those things. Are, they're going to be just fine. You've brought up some plants over and over again, and I know I've been to some nurseries where they'll actually have some sort of label or signifier for plants that are especially tough ones that just work in less than optimal conditions, which I really appreciate. One, one plant that seems to always be on that list is the, the fragrant uh, grow low sumac that seems to have so many uses. Uh, you talk a little bit about that and other plants that to you just are, are great for situations where you're just not really sure what, if anything, can actually thrive. So that sumac that you mentioned, that's that fragrant sumac that I was talking about being awesome on slopes or dry, gravelly soils. And it is just that. So we're talking about a plant that's adapted to grow in very, very thin soils, uh, in exposed sites, um, hill sl- hillsides, that sort of thing. Fragrant sumac... Uh, it's really, I think it's it's interesting and really beautiful, and it definitely has a, a number of different uh, landscape values. The grow low variety that you mentioned, Nate, stays a bit closer to the ground, uh, typically doesn't exceed three feet in height, whereas the straight species will grow up to six feet or more. Most people are going to find that shorter sumac more appropriate that has a, a shorter, more spreading habit. It does produce berries. That will be eaten by wildlife, so that's great. It also has fabulous fall color. So we're talking like a a bright orange or red 
shiny, glossy fall color. And during the growing season, you have this three-parted, very attractive, dark, glossy green leaf. It's not going to have the big showy flowers that people might be looking for, but it's a plant that you're really not going to have to water at all once it's established, and it's going to do a lot better if you actually give it poor soil. So that one's worth talking about. Another native that's kind of hard to propagate but is definitely growing in popularity is sweet fern. This is a plant that you'll often find growing along roadsides or in abandoned gravel pits because it likes to grow in these very, very nutrient-poor, well-drained, full-sun sites. I like this one for slopes as well. Uh, I believe this one also fixes its own nitrogen, which is kind of cool, which is you know in part why it's able to survive in these incredibly uh, low-fertility places. So that one's worthwhile. Plus, it has really nice, fragrant foliage. With some of the perennials that keep popping up again and again, um, I know I've mentioned daylilies a couple times. And, you know, there there are people that kind of hate on daylilies just because they're they're so common. Uh, But I think there's a good reason for that. I mean, they have really beautiful flowers, not very many pest or disease issues. Of course, they're not native. These are these are come from Asia. And they will tolerate a wide variety of growing conditions. So you can put them in a, you know, more consistently moist soil and they'll thrive. Um, They'll also do just fine in in a really dry site as well. And heat is typically fine too. So look around. If you know what a daylily looks like, you're going to find them in the majority of parking lot islands (laughs) at shopping complexes. The trick for you as a home gardener, if you think that daylilies are boring, is to go after some of the more unique cultivars that have different colored flowers or different flower shapes, sizes, what have you. Well, why don't we talk about those parking lot islands for a second? So if a grocery store or big box store or something came to you and said, you know what, we're going to give you complete control. You choose exactly what's going on our parking lot islands and you have the budget to do it. How are you approaching that? Well, first off, I guess I'd be looking at the size of that island uh, and trying to decide whether a, a tree could fit in that spot or whether we're talking shrubs or perennials. If this is a, a decent size island, you know, if that's, I don't know if I'm getting to design the whole thing um, or if the island's already there, I'm looking at putting in some really drought tolerant, urban tolerant trees. That honey locust that I mentioned is definitely top of the list. I'd probably be thinking maybe hawthorn as well. The fruit can be a little bit messy, but it's a tree that does okay in that scenario. And if this is a really big spot where we've got room for a big mature tree someday, then I'm thinking London plane tree. That's another real interesting one that's um, a cross between a couple of different species of sycamore. So quite lovely. For shrubs... I'm, again, thinking things that are heat and drought tolerant. That sumac is, is going to get planted for sure in at least a few spots. Uh, I might also be thinking about hmm, possibly something like a, a, a chokeberry, aronia, which will take some dry soil. Um, and it's, it's native, too, so the local robins might enjoy it. And for perennials... Those daylilies are probably going to get used. I'm probably going to put in some ornamental grasses and maybe something um, 
like a Perovskia, Russian sage, or catmint, which are fine with, with hot and dry. One tough spot a lot of New Hampshire gardeners deal with is places that have been taken over by something undesirable. Maybe it's poison ivy. Maybe it's Japanese knotweed, an invasive plant. How do you approach those types of tough spots? Well, it depends on what the species is. I mean, usually my approach, certainly with something like Japanese knotweed or, or even poison ivy, is to try to get those under control first before I even think about planting poison ivy just because I don't want to deal with the exposure. Um, with Japanese knotweed, I would need to get rid of it so that anything I plant in that space has some sort of chance uh, when you're talking about an incredibly aggressive, invasive plant species, it's difficult to plant something desirable there and expect to have it outcompete this established invasive plant. Um, with some invasives, you might be able to do that with. You might be able to plant some natives in and slowly get rid of the invasives in that area or just plant non-invasive things. So let's say you have a you have a bunch of autumn olive or, or something similar. You might be able to interplant with that and gradually work on getting rid of that invasive. But with the poison ivy or knotweed, I would be trying to control it entirely. You know, no more like no more growth. This thing is dead as a doornail. Probably going to be a multi-year process. Certainly for the knotweed, poison ivy too. It's probably going to be a couple of years at least before you fully have it under control, and then. When basically that site is just ground zero, then I would start over and be planting what I want in that area. One thing that we haven't really talked about is that in these tough spots where conditions aren't optimal, a lot of times they're going to be weeds just thriving, plants that you did not put there and, and are by any or most definitions weeds. Uh, when you come into a site, uh, how do you approach the weed control, um, and what are those weeds potentially telling you about that location? Yeah, there's going to oftentimes in a site the the weeds are going to tell you what the growing conditions are about. A lot of plants have a, a pretty specific range of conditions that they like to grow in. The soil needs to be have a certain amount of drainage. There needs to be certain sun exposure. And some of it's by chance, too. There are always just, you know, random things that just happen to germinate in a spot. Uh, but with a lot of weeds, you can find out pretty quickly if you know the species, whether that soil is is very coarse or well-drained or whether it's consistently wet. Um, how much sun or shade there is it could tell you a bit about the acidity of the soil. So even if you haven't done a soil test yet, some weeds are going to tell you that the soil is probably acid. Or that the soil has very low fertility or that it's compacted, um, which is kind of cool. Um, and I actually wrote a short blog about this on our website just to talk about some of these indicator weeds. If you're trying to plant a spot that's totally infested with weeds, you're going to have to control them in some way. So if you're looking to plant right away, that could mean going in by hand and ripping all the weeds up, planting what you want, and then putting down a heavy layer of mulch. That approach totally works. Just know that you're going to have to weed consistently in that area because they're just going to keep coming up for a while. If you are looking for, I guess, a bit more complete weed control, you could take some time to really prepare that site 
on. And oftentimes gardeners like to do that with smothering. So putting tarps down over that area or maybe doing a cardboard or newspaper layer covered with compost or mulch over a spot for, for talking about herbaceous weeds, probably at least three months before planting. Uh, that can work too. Um, and honestly, if you have time on your hands, it's probably the approach I would take because you're not disturbing the soil as much. You're not bringing new weed seeds to the surface as you're ripping up old weeds. Just takes a bit more planning and patience. We haven't really talked about vegetable gardening, but that brings up its own set of challenges and techniques too. Uh, so if you're dealing with compact soil or really sandy soil, there are approaches that you might take in a vegetable garden that might not be as practical in just ornamental parts of the landscape. To me, cover crops come to mind in addition to, of course, adding organic matter. But if I'm dealing with a really compact site, there are certain cover crops that might really help with that where their root systems are going to sort of do the work for you, like a tillage radish or something like that. And then uh, really sandy spots, you might be able to grow a cover crop that just generates a lot of biomass that when you do maybe turn that in or till it in or maybe it's winter killed, you're just adding a lot of material that that grew while that cover crop was, was actively growing um, that's going to help you out. Um, so that's exciting and not sure if you have anything to add on the, the cover crop sort of soil improvement aspects of, of an area you want to do as a vegetable, vegetable garden, but doesn't have the best soil. Well, to start with the only thing I, I guess I would note, and maybe this is abundantly clear to everybody, but you do have to have bare soil in order to sow your cover crops. So you might be, you know, tarping the area or, or you know, to smother vegetation or maybe you've tilled, but you, you can't go into just a weedy site and, and sow cover crops and expect them to take over. If only. If only. That would be so much better. And I, I guess one thing that, that kind of differenti differentiates the vegetable garden, too, is that tilling comes into play. Not something that's going to come into play once you've established a you know perennial garden, obviously. But with the vegetable garden, it's an option. Um, it's something a lot of gardeners do. Um, yeah. So mixing in a cover crop though is absolutely worthwhile. I think worth the investment. I think our, my closing question for you, cause we're, we're pretty much out of time here in the studio, but what about areas that have a lot of heavy metals, things like lead or arsenic? Cause of course we do heavy metal soil testing, you may just have a pretty good sense of that if you're gardening next to a house that had lead paint on it or are gardening somewhere that used to be, you know, a, a long time ago, so, some kind of commercial um, agricultural operation or, you know, an industrial site, something like that. There are a lot of situations. And in, in this region, there are some heavy metals that are just naturally abundant, too. So it's going to be a situation uh, for, for a lot of folks. So how do you approach dealing with that issue? And I'll throw an added wrinkle in there too, which is uh, sometimes you may be trying to grow where your water source uh, pre-filtration has have tricky heavy metals in it, like an arsenic, and you need supplemental irrigation 
So how do you deal with that too? So many issues. So many issues. And usually these issues are most considerable if you're dealing with, if you're trying to grow food, if you're trying to grow vegetables. Not as much of an issue in the perennial garden, unless we're talking about seriously, seriously high levels where you don't want any contact at all with your, on your bare skin while you're gardening. We don't see that really often anyways. Right. It's a spectrum. It's not like you either have heavy metals or you don't. Pretty much all soil is going to have heavy metals in it, like everywhere. Healthy soils, it's, there's going to be some heavy metals. It's just a matter of, of whether it's excessive, right, enough to cause harm. With a veggie garden, you know, if it comes back and your heavy metals are through the roof, a lot of people opt for raised beds and they bring in new soil. That is probably the, your safest bet. If, you know, metal levels are, are moderate and you want to grow in the ground, then paying really close attention to soil pH and organic matter is key. Um, while those heavy metals are going to be locked up in the soil, if the pH is closer to neutral, so closer to 7, then, you know, more acidic. And organic matter is also going to help bind up a lot of those heavy metals. Uh, you're also probably going to be thinking about adjusting what you're growing. So you're going to want to grow crops that aren't going to have a whole lot of, of direct soil contact, or at least the thing you're going to eat doesn't have direct soil contact. So like tomatoes, for example, or anything with a fruit is probably going to be okay because those metals, the issue isn't so much that the plant is taking up the metals and putting it into that produce. It's that the metals are getting onto that produce when it's grown in the soil. So root veggies, skip those. A lot of the greens, I'd skip those as well or put those in your raised bed or containers and have a ball with your tomatoes, peppers, eggplants, tomatillos, beans, all, all of that stuff. What about some of those brassicas, like, say, a cauliflower or broccoli? Yeah, it's kind of a, a gray area there, too, with those. I mean, I, I would be a little less concerned with, with cauliflower or broccoli because those are held up off of the soil. Um, but, yeah, it, it's kind of up to you. I mean, there's you can assess your, your level of, of risk with, with growing in this sort of scenario. And just to sort of emphasize a, fa- a point you already made, it really depends on how – the concentration of heavy metals in your soil, whether even growing fruiting crops is an option. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So there, there is definitely a, a cutoff too, where it's like you should not be having direct skin to soil contact um, in, in this particular soil. And at least for University of New Hampshire soil testing program for a basic home grounds and garden soil test, we do something called a lead screening, but if your lead screening comes back high, we recommend going to the next level and doing a more complete analysis, as well as maybe testing for heavy metals, too. Right. To really be able to make an informed decision, because I'm, I'm not sure if you could speak to how the lead screening works, but if it comes back high, that's not giving us as much information as we might want to be able to make an educated decision. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So so doing the more involved heavy metals test is, is typically recommended. Again, pretty rare in New Hampshire. But if you don't know, if you're just starting off gardening um, and you don't know the history of the site or you're next to a very old house or something, probably worthwhile. 
And the only other time, sometimes we see high arsenic levels in soils in New Hampshire, and often that's because there is a an old orchard there where, you know, an arsenic pesticide was used. Or you have high levels of arsenic in your water supply. Right. Which is common in even drilled wells. If you're not running your water through a filter before it's going out for irrigation, that arsenic can build up over time. It can. Yeah. And that is a concern in in some locations. So getting your water tested as well, especially when you, you move on to a new property, I mean, for your own consumption as well as using it in your garden is important. Yeah. And doing that regularly because conditions can change. So I forget exactly what our state's Department of Environmental Services says, whether it's every two or three years, they recommend water testing. And certainly in addition to that, if you detect any kind of change in taste or odor from the water, you know, maybe you got your water tested six months ago. But if you detect that change, you should get another water test. Yeah. And that's definitely something to consider when your your well might be getting low or after there's there's you know, we've had a. A drought like we're in right now, that that's often a time to be considering the water and seeing, you know, if there's if there's been a change. Yeah. Any other tough situations or spots that you'd like to cover before we wrap? Oh, there's all sorts of combinations, of course, Nate, right, of all these specific scenarios. Uh, but I'm I'm always happy to talk people through what some of their options might be for a tough spot in their landscape. Yeah, exactly. So so reach out to us with the specifics of your situation. We'd be happy to cover your unique set of conditions as a featured question on a future episode. So send, send us emails to gsg.pod at unh.edu. Okay, now seriously, we've got to wrap up, but not before you share this episode's featured plant. This episode's featured plant is sweet fern, Comptonia peregrina, a plant named for its fragrant, deeply notched foliage, though sweet fern is not actually a fern at all. It's a member of the wax myrtle family, alongside shrubs like bayberry. Sweet fern is a native New Hampshire shrub that grows about two to five feet tall and spreads anywhere from four to eight feet. When found in the wild, it usually grows in poor, sandy, or gravelly, infertile soils, such as along roadsides. Interestingly, though, it fixes its own nitrogen, much like many other members of the pea family. Sweet fern is a shrub that I often recommend planting in difficult areas in full sun with droughty, poor soil. I think it makes an excellent addition to native plant gardens or naturalized areas where it can be left alone to spread and colonize. It's also excellent for stabilizing slopes and embankments. The only downside to sweet fern is that it can be difficult to transplant and sometimes takes a while to become established. However, if you plant it in the right location, you won't be disappointed. If you've been listening and have made it this far, sounds like you're probably really enjoying the podcast. So consider leaving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes or wherever you're listening if they let you leave a a review. Um, We really appreciate everyone tuning in and helping spread the word about this podcast for uh, gardeners in New Hampshire and northern New England. Thanks for tuning in to Granite State Gardening. Until next time, 
keep on growing in all those tough spots and situations. Granite State Gardeners, we'll talk again soon. Granite State Gardening is a production of University of New Hampshire Cooperative Extension, an equal opportunity educator and employer. Views expressed on this podcast are not necessarily those of the universities, its trustees, or its volunteers. Inclusion or exclusion of commercial products in this podcast does not imply endorsement. The University of New Hampshire, U.S. Department of Agriculture, and New Hampshire counties cooperate to provide extension programming in the Granite State. Learn more at extension.unh.edu.